As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, for the first time ever, Londonist Out Loud does not come to you from London, nor even from the UK. It's our first trip overseas, as it was for many of those who signed up with their pals for a trip across the channel in the defence of their country and of what was right. The passing of a hundred years may have modified our view of how right that cause was. It certainly didn't take long for some perspective to find its way into the early unalloyed patriotism. But in those early days of the First World War, as a Londoner who is a member of several groups... There's a very good chance I would have found myself signing up in a PALS platoon and making my way through northern France to the front line and into a battle whose name has become synonymous with the scale of industrialised war. At the distance of nearly a century, we follow in the footsteps of thousands of other Londoners who came to the Somme and were never to see London again. It's May the 16th, 2014. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, stood out me. See things of air, land, and sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, jam-brand store. My heart aches for some far off place. Well, hello, hello. If you've come to this episode of Londonist Out Loud via the londonist.com webpage for it, then you'll already know where we are and why we're there. If you're coming to us via iTunes or one of the other platforms on which you can find the show, then, well, this is an atypical broadcast today. Atypical for a number of reasons. Londonist Out Loud is not in London today. And where we are right now, well, it's a very, very attractive public gardens. Uh, we're surrounded by sculpted landscape and greenery up above us a few hundred yards away is a church and on top of it the gleaming golden statue of the virgin mary holding the baby jesus aloft with me is military historian gareth edwards and uh, gareth we should start by saying where we are 
Yeah, we're in the French town of Albert, um, which is kind of in the, the northern region of France, in Picardy, and perhaps more well-known for being on the Somme, which is a name that kind of anyone who, who follows British history uh, knows very, very well, certainly in the current period with World War I ongoing. Yes, and for those listeners who are outside of the UK and perhaps that name is less familiar to them, what does the name the, the Somme conjure up when you think of it? The Somme is, is kind of a name that's associated with, with one of the big British military offensives in 1916 during World War I. Um, it's kind of the, the first time that what's known as, as Kitchener's Army, these, these, all these volunteers that signed up, everyone's seen the famous poster. It's kind of saying, you know, we need you. All the people who signed up as a result for that fought here, and an awful lot of them died here. Okay, so this is the first bit after the uh, Old Contemptibles, I think they're called, aren't they? The regular army who joined up and they do that professionally have been required to take on volunteers and we're kind of awash with them at the moment. We're recognising the centenary of the start of the First World War in 1914. So things like uh, Ypres and Mon and the Somme and all, all these names will be kind of uh, everywhere at the moment. Can we separate it out a little bit and talk very specifically about this place as opposed to the other places that we're likely to be encountering in today's broadcast. Yeah, Albert is, is, is to a certain extent behind the lines by the time of the Somme. If you think of sort of a middle-sized British town, think of something sort of Tunbridge Wells-ish maybe in, in, in style, and it becomes part of, of the initial assault uh, when the Germans first invade France, and it gets takes an awful lot of damage. I mean, it's, it's, it's practically levelled during that. But as the British and the French push them back slightly, by 1916, it's a little bit behind the lines, and it's become sort of the, the supply point behind the, these kind of big trenches a few miles to the kind of northeast. And the church that we mentioned there has a peculiar significance as well. Yes, the, this, this big golden statue of, of Madonna and Child, I think is its official name. And it is massive, I've got to say. Oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, and it's big and gleaming. And in a war where, where artillery plays a big part, you've got to sit there and think, you know, why, why is this still standing when the rest of the town were levelled? And there's a, there's a kind of curious history to that, which is that a bit of a rumour developed for both sides, really, that the statue being knocked off the top would have bad repercussions for the war. From the British and the French side, the troops kind of had this, this idea that when it fell, the war would end and the German troops had this myth that when it fell whoever knocked it over would lose the war um, in the end neither came true um, when it did get knocked down it was it was by the British in 1918 but at the time we're talking about here it was it was still a big feature on the battlefield and most of these troops as they were coming from from Britain these these people are in France for the first time really a lot of them out their towns for the first time would have seen this as they trooped through and off towards the front well, that gives us a, a very nice link into uh, the angle that brings us here. And, of course, we've got to say that everyone, every media outlet is covering the First World War at the moment, and we're not going to attempt to do what they're doing. What we are going to do is follow some very particular stories, uh, the stories of Londoners, and that brings us really back to the uh, idea of those volunteers who start to come in to support and re- replace the regular professional soldiers in, in around about the time we're talking, sort of 1915. 1916. So how does that link up with what we're over here to talk about? Well, we're over here to look at the London Regiment and the London Regiment's role that it played during the Battle of the Somme, and it played quite an important part in the combat. 
and also to look at some of the key figures and um, there's a couple of Londoners who serve in other regiments which people think that everyone served near their their town or their home but by this stage of the war actually people started getting drafted in so we'll look at uh, a soldier who was actually fighting in a Northern Irish regiment but who was a Londoner and uh, who earned a Victoria Cross in the process. Hmm. And we can say something as well, can't we, about teams and social groups and so forth. There were, there were plenty of societies of that sort, as, as there are now, um, across the UK. And how, how did that begin to filter into uh, the, uh, the, the planning and the, conduct, uh, and the conduct of the war? Yeah, by this point, a lot of those volunteers all signed up en masse, and they signed up in groupings either based on work or on, on social clubs. And one of the other you know, groups of people we'll, we'll t- spend a bit of time on over here is actually the members of the football battalion. Um, that was a, a, almost a, a battalion that was composed entirely of professional footballers or their, or their supporting staff. And the biggest contributor to the football battalion was actually the staff and players of, of Clapton Orient, which the name might vaguely trigger memories for people now, but that's probably because they know them better as Leighton Orient, who are currently in League One and, uh, and, and obviously doing well there. And would the members of that, uh, uh, now are we calling it a regiment or a battalion? My military <laughs> terminology exhausts itself about here. Uh, battalions are, you know, I, I think it's, it's very easy to get locked down into the, into the numbers of the, these kind of things, so I'll try and avoid that for you. But if you think of a, a regiment as being made up of multiple battalions, um, so multiple gr- large groupings of soldiers, and then within that you have sort of uh, uh, companies. Um, so a battalion is a lot of people, basically. Um, so, so your football team, that would be uh, what? So your football team, on average, would probably be sort of a platoon into a, into a, com- into a company, um, and then battalion would have lots and lots of these. Um, I suppose the, the, maybe the way to think of it is, is, uh, is if you took every player on every team in, in, in a league and put them together, they'd probably be roughly a battalion. Well done. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, then, if we start thinking about those particular groups that are of interest to us, are they likely to have set foot where we're standing right now and in what context? Yes, most of them would have, they'd have arguably been standing almost certainly where we are right now. I mean, this was the main path through uh, Albert at the time, and they'd have trooped through here on foot, having walked down from, like, most likely from Calais after disembarking, having completed their training in Britain. They'd have spent most of 1915 training, um, and they're now well aware that they're being pushed forward for something and that something is, is what becomes known as the Big Push, which is the Battle of the Somme on, on, that kicks off on the 1st of July 1916. So they would have been here, they'd have seen this, they'd have been marvelling at, at, at the, the, the Frenchness of it all, which would have been very unfamiliar to them. Um, and this, for many of them, would have been the last, last major town they'd have ever seen. And of course, it's, uh, with the exception of the church tower there, it's not an experience we can share, because, uh, as we can see, a lot of the buildings are, are very modern and uh, that's as a consequence of what was about to happen. Yeah, I mean, Albert itself was almost entirely demolished by the end of the war, um, and there are various towns that, that were not rebuilt in this area. Um, there was actually quite a, a big campaign to declare Albert at what was called a red zone, which meant that you didn't rebuild here, because obviously, as you can imagine, there's an awful lot of debris and bombs and everything else. In the end, the, luckily, the citizens rejected that. They wanted to come back, and so we now stand in, in, a, in a rebuilt, rather lovely little French town. 
well, there's something extremely disquieting, of course, about us being able to enjoy the greenery and the sunshine and uh, imagining what may have taken place on the spot on which we stand. There's an echo of it just here next to us in the park, a gun of uh, some sort. You'll be able to name exactly what sort of weapon this is. Yes, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very small, for the time, artillery piece that's, uh, that's just kind of there as a, as a marker um, in, 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 this, in this garden. It is a reminder of, 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 of what we've seen. That's true. It's uh, five, six foot long. You say very small, and of course we've seen those enormous big berthers and all that stuff. And they, the guns mounted on trains, uh, incredible size. Where would they be in relation to where we are now? Would they be anywhere close even? Yeah, they're actually not far away from here. I mean, it's remembering that we're, we're sort of slightly behind the front here. Um, so they'd have been slightly in advance of Albert on a kind of slightly wiggly line uh, to, to the sort of north northeast on the back edge of the battlefield itself. This town, by the time of, of, of that offensive, is actually just outside of the range of the German guns, which is which is why it's kind of still standing at this at this point in that little bit better condition. These things were throwing shells, you know, mile mile and a half at this point. It's it's a long way, um, and it's one of the things that poses quite great difficulties. Orchestrating these correctly is one of the things that causes a lot of difficulty during the battle itself. Now, I know as a military historian, your services are being called upon and, well, there's quite a variety of approaches in terms of covering the Great War. Some of it a little bit schmaltzy or sugar-coated, some of it going for blood and guts and particular angles, some seeking to redress imbalances in in how it's been presented in the past. What's your sort of bird's-eye view on all of that? What would you like to avoid and what sort of directions have you been asked to take that you were less than uh, pleased about? I, I think it's a good question. I think the thing with all of this stuff is ultimately we're 100 years away from it now and, and that's, that's a long time and people's perceptions and memories change over time and a lot of those people who had those original memories aren't, aren't here anymore um, anyway. And I think there, there can be a tendency to play it as a, a, as a black or white thing one way or the other. Either it was, it was utterly horrible or everyone was really happy to do it and, and very patriotic about it. And as always, the truth is down the middle. So I, I'd say the, the things that I dislike are being asked to paint it in either of those two ways. Um, uh, when actually there were, there were people, soldiers fighting on this, on this uh, front would feel patriotism and fear in equal measure at different times and they'd, uh, they'd have times when that level of, of comradeship and uh, mucking about that you'd get on the schoolyards and on the football pitches and then other times there'd be the ruthless kind of needs of battle where everyone would be very, very military. So yeah, it's, it's down the middle really. Now I've done a lot of reading up on this, of course, because I'm a novelist and it, this is quite a deep level experience for me because I've spent several years immersed in the the world of this character who has been in this place on the Somme and uh, involved with with the battles that we're talking about and as part of the research for that I've been reading up on a lot of Imperial War Museum archive texts, a lot of diaries, a lot of letters and also some fantastic transcriptions of uh, recordings that soldiers who fought here made at whatever point afterwards and what struck me was the staggering ordinariness of a lot of the experience. And if I had to, to kind of distill it on some level, it was almost as though as soon as you start attaching huge amounts of emotion to it, you've got a false picture of, of really what was going on. Yeah, I mean, human beings are funny funny things, really. We, we, we can make the ordinary out of the extraordinary very quickly. And that's very much what, what happens here and throughout the First World War. And, and we'll explore a little bit of that because, yeah, ultimately... 
you know, the, the Somme battles that, that, that cost so much in terms of life actually takes place over a very short space of time. And that means that for the vast majority of these, of these guys coming over here, um, they'll have spent time manning trenches, doing, doing the, uh, the, the daily chores and, and, and everything else and trying not to get shot by snipers. And that will have formed the bulk of their activity and then that's just punctuated by these sudden bursts of, of, of attempting to advance where life gets very brutal very fast. Do you know what it's also reminded me of is um, uh, you hear the accounts of people kind of partying and so, you know, there's a, a bit of uh, social life going on in uh, Amiens which is the city that we've just come from with the most gorgeous cathedral I've ever seen and there was a lot of uh, R&R going on there and then they'd be shipped over uh, what we've driven about uh, 20 kilometres it's maybe taken us uh, as many minutes to get here and, the, and the, this is pretty much the, the front line and all of those images that we're used to here it reminded me a little bit of the, those Vietnam films where people are in Hawaiian shirts and partying and all sorts of sexy stuff going on and then the next day they're in the jungle with things being blown off. There is an element of that to it. Um, what you, you get and I think it gets forgotten is these guys were rotated out quite regularly because it, it was well known that you didn't want to keep these frontline troops. You couldn't keep them at, at the height of their attention and their ability you know 24 hours a day for long periods of time. So there's an awful lot of, of people spending days at the line and then being rotated back en masse uh, and then getting a bit of a breather and then going back again and during those times i mean there's there's a there's almost a very rich kind of oral uh, folk tradition that, that actually has been largely forgotten but that comes from this time you know these guys took took music hall songs or patriotic songs that were that, that were written to inspire at home and as is often the way with, with, with when you put a bunch of blokes together um they started coming up with alternate lyrics that you know, the commander of the army douglas haig did uh, did very much not approve of um so there's a lot of that that goes on so we'll be humming Mademoiselle from Armentier as we uh, <laughs> head out of the shadow of the church here at Albert. Well, there's an amazing story to do with that, which is that Douglas Haig um, was very much against ribald lyrics and rewritings of any of his uh, of any of these kind of songs. He was quite an up, 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 upstanding person. And uh, there was a time on a road not dissimilar to this where uh, an entire battalion was marching along singing a very filthy version of that song, entirely unaware that uh, marching up behind them on horseback was a uh, was, was the general himself and there's the, these accounts of as he marched further and further up everyone behind came quiet as they realised who was, who, was, uh, who was marching past them <laughs> until uh, they reached the front and the colonel himself who was singing it louder than anyone else at which point Douglas Haig leaned down to him and said I approve of the tune I'm not sure I approve of the lyrics carry on and then marched off <laughs> Uh, we will not be giving you a rendition of that by the sounds of it. We're going to move through the area in... Um, what I think we're not doing is taking it in a chronological order because that would be crazy and it's kind of the job of other people to piece that stuff together in that particular way. We're going to be taking in places that are relevant to the, the particular stories we're telling here. And in order to do that, where's the best place to, to go right now? I think what's important really first of all is to get an overall impression of what it was like on the 1st of July, which is the first day this all kicked off. So we'll head a bit north to somewhere where we can, we can get a good idea of that. We've driven a little further along an unremarkable road cutting between green fields and uh, some rather unattractive industrial facilities. It looks as though they've got a bit of plane building going on around here. And, well, we're out the other side of it. It's, it's a lovely day. 
very peaceful, very quiet. We're on a country track behind a small village here, and uh, signs are pointing towards the, are pointing us towards the crucifix. Further down the lane here, that looks to be where we're going to uh, find what we're going to find. So, well, I'll leave uh, the vehicle parked up here. And one of the things that we've been talking about on the way over here is how many of the roadside signs have names that seem so loaded with meaning. And one of them, for example, Cambrai, that's there. I, I know that to be of huge historical importance, even without knowing a, a damn thing about it. We were saying that's one of the the tank battles that was going to be significant later on in the war. We should say perhaps something about the use of tanks at the stage of the war that we've been talking about middle of uh, 1916 yeah one of the the kind of the, the big myths so to speak is that tanks happen a bit later on they happen in kind of 1917 and beyond and actually you know some of our londoners that we're going to talk about today actually actually encounter tanks because this is where they're first used they're used here in 1916 i won't i won't spoil too much yet but but we will encounter them and it does look like, uh, if, you, if you were trying to drive a prototype tank around, this looks like a pretty good bit of land to do it on because it, it's uh, undulating, but it's not hilly or anything like that. I wonder what obstacles would have been facing the tanks. There'd have been more trees around. Um, I think one of the things that we look on these sweeping landscapes now and, and think about, my God, it's quite bare and open. Well, one of the reasons it's quite so bare and open is, is we're, actually, we're actually pretty much walking along the front line right now. Can we say something about the where the lion fell? Because, of course, we know that during the war the lions didn't move very much. And uh, sort of famously a few inches were gained here and there and, and then lost again. Why this bit of this particular country? Well, what you've, you've, you've got here is that by sort of the, the potted history, at the beginning of the war... The, the Germans pushed through Belgium. They pushed into this area of, of France, the kind of the northeast, um, and it's where the British and the French ultimately stopped them at great cost. By this stage of the war, the Germans had kind of realised they weren't going to make Paris, so they'd pulled back slightly and built this network of trenches. There'd been this race to the sea where both sides tried to build all their trenches. So where we are now is where where it had become the fixed position. So you've got this very winding network of trenches in the kind of northeast. Of, of, of France, largely following and in and around the Somme River at this stage. Um, the French are a little bit further to the south. We're in the British section here. And the timing of, of what we're about to go through, the, the assault on the 1st of July 1916, largely comes about because by this point the French are under an enormous amount of pressure further south at Verdun. The Germans have launched this huge assault to try and literally, they called it, bleed the French nation dry. And the French are crying out for the British to do something, anything, to try and pull some of the pressure off of them in the south and bring the German attention back north again. Um, and that's why this assault is planned. It's planned to, to, to buy in the French, French breathing time as much as it is about breaking through to Germany. And uh, one thing before we... Uh, just one other thing before we head um, further down the, the lane here. Um, my sketchy knowledge of the Battle of Agincourt reminds me that the Somme was really good defensively because it's quite difficult to get across the Somme. 
uh, is, was the river used in the same way here? More early on, um, certainly, and again also through, through Belgium and into France, canals and, and, and the rivers became the big obstacles. By this time, you've got things like machine guns, and they make, they make moving over any open terrain very, very difficult. And although it's, it's gently undulating, there are little bits of hills here and there, and they become massively more important now. So, yes, it's, it's difficult to get off, but it also makes good defensive territory. As you can see all around us, there's, there's lots of chalk. Um, it's far easier to dig in here and not have your trench flood unless you get really, really bad weather than it is elsewhere on, on other points on the line. Um, and, you know, un- until that weather breaks, um, the Somme is, is not the worst place on the line to be. I always try and record this podcast in the spirit of, uh, of honesty, and I hope anybody listening to this uh to this show will have got to know that about the the style that we we do this um as we were talking here and uh, i think we've described the surroundings pretty well um the closest trees are uh, getting on for a mile away and i, I suddenly got filled with a, a wave of absolute terror there because there there isn't a, there's nowhere to hide there's nothing at all if if anybody wanted to take a shot at me from anywhere at all in within a mile radius i'm i'm a sitting duck that's really horrifying i don't think there's much there's really nothing that can be uh, said about that other than to register the chill that's that's coursing through me at the moment Where were the? Um, do we know where the trenches were? Is, what, what is this lane? Is this? Did this figure in uh, in things at all? Or uh, to a certain extent, this this is one of the later supply roads that once the lines move forward a bit gets built. Um, if you imagine the lines, though, and, and this this is this is the easiest way. Any time you look at a map of this area and you ask yourself where were the actual trenches, look for the high bits, because we have this kind of image that, that trench warfare happened happened on this very very flat land and it does i mean it's very open around here like you say but also it's all very gently undulating and you can see wherever you see a high bit of land a ridge that's where the german trenches were because they were very good at knowing where to build um, uh, right the german trenches and, and the british trenches british trenches would have been in most places you know not far away they'd have been just slightly in front in fact probably um if you head back down this lane about two minutes uh, further from where from where we are now, you'll you, you'll hit the the British trenches. So in most places they're they're close. They're kind of on the hillside or at the bottom of of, of the gently sloping hill where where you, where you you find the German ones. Um, sometimes they can be ridiculously close. You're talking thirty feet away. Sometimes they'll be much much further away. I feel, I actually feel tearful. Uh, I. I like to think that would be a normal human reaction to thinking about this let's let's press on up the lane now the special effects department is laying on a, a passing biplane for us yes it is i mean and to a certain extent at this point in the battle the british were the only ones that that, that had aerial photography and that played a crucial part in the battle because oh, well, what's that yeah, mainly because they had the better planes and they had them in the right place at the right time. Um, so at this stage, the aerial observer corps is only really kicking in and the British are starting to use it to try and work out where the Germans are ahead of this assault. Now that, that interests me, though. What's, uh, what's to prevent uh, Germany from developing the same technology? 
I mean, or, or are we talking? Because it seems a whole bunch of times here, um, and and into the Second World War as well, as though um, it, it's just a question of one side getting it, the technology a fraction of a second before the other. Yeah, and that's mostly what happens. I mean, war is a big driver of technical technical development, and so pretty much the moment the moment the British did something that worked, the Germans would copy it. The moment the Germans did something that worked, the British would copy it. That's part of the reason for the stalemate. No one has a a breakthrough of ideas fast enough for it to make a difference. Was one side leading the technological advancements more than the other? No, in different ways. Um, the, the British, obviously, tanks were one of the big things that come out of the, the British development, but the Germans were the absolute master of how to plan and build defensive positions, and that's something that everyone here at the Somme would learn very much to their cost. Right, yes, much deeper bunkers and uh, doors pointing the right way and all sorts of things, yeah. Yes, and I think... That's something they underestimate very much so in this offensive. Um, we're now kind of approaching our destination. Um, the time we've just been talking there, we've just covered roughly the distance that these British troops had to advance to attack this line. We talked uh, off mic about dispelling myths. I don't know whether this is a myth or not, but is it, is it true that uh, people were ordered to walk rather than advance quickly or run? It was more staying in formation. I think what you've got to remember, as we talked about before, is these guys are volunteers. They're new to the army. There's a very much a need to keep them trained and keep them close together because the army's very, very worried that when they get first-blooded, they won't know what to do or, or how properly to do it. They advance slowly, but they're also carrying a lot of weight. Imagine carrying two spare tyres. That's how much weight these guys were carrying into combat. And uh, to our left, the field's continue to our right a uh, the crucifix that we saw earlier on uh, surrounded by stakes that are themselves made of uh, crucifixes garlanded with uh, poppy wreaths and uh, we can see a wooden uh, track leading us up there and what is this site we are at now the Lochnagar crater on the 1st of July 1916 as an effort to to make an impression and to break these lines before the troops got here. The Allied powers, British particularly in this case, obviously, uh, set off a whole bunch of very, very large mines beneath the German lines at various points. We're at the extreme edge of the line here where one of these went off, and walking ahead we'll see just exactly how much of an impression that left on the ground. Well, we're passing up behind the crucifix now, following a... Uh, a path that moves around the site of the explosion you're describing. You'll hear banging in the background, listener, and that is uh, a trio of uh, English people who are fixing up the walkway. Uh, It's made out of uh, wooden planks that allows the visitor to see what I've avoided looking at so far, and uh, it's it's very difficult to because it's quite clearly enormous. So let's... Jesus Christ. That's not a professional reaction, that's a real reaction. Good God. I apologise to you, listener, if you uh, uh, take offence on religious grounds for me using those phrases. The... What is that, 50 foot deep or... 
I've, words fail me in terms of describing this thing. Um, it, even if I were to know exactly the dimensions of this astonishing uh, hole in the ground, I don't think that would convey it at all. And the thought that this is one explosion, or is it? I mean, am I am I right to assume that? Not that it makes a blindest bit of difference, but this is, is this one bomb having gone off? Yeah, I mean, it's a mine. Effectively, what they would have done is um, we're at a point on the line where once the it was known that this is where the attack was going to come, this is one of the big fortified positions, German positions at the time. So the ground around here wasn't even flat. Um, it would have gone up slightly. You would have had big concrete machine gun posts and fortifications on top of it. And what happened was British miners very carefully, very slowly over the preceding months dug under that, that position, packed an enormous amount of explosives into the into the mine. And then in the early hours of, of, of July the 1st, 1916, just before the, the, the men were due to go in, they set it off. It's not often that a bit of landscape, and it's in in some of the uh, representations of war, it's easy to to uh, go over the top and, and be very sensational in terms of body parts and then things exploding. And th- this is very simply uh, the most dramatic piece of landscape I, I think I can imagine because of what's not here. What do you feel when you see this? You've seen this before, of course. Yeah, I've 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 been here, you know, a fair few times now. I think it never loses its power. I think it's it's very hard to put into words the the scale of it. Um, and I think one of the things it always brings home to me is that we we kind of have this image of of battles like the Somme as being uh, the generals, the, the the senior officers, not knowing what they were up against to a certain extent and just throwing men forward. And the truth is is not quite that. What it is is that. You know, these guys were trying to come up with creative ways to break these lines. They knew that, that, that just sheer force of people wasn't going to be enough. And this is an example of one of those. It sort of worked, but ultimately you, you can't do this thing everywhere. And so whatever temporary gains this gets you, um, you, you've suddenly got to defend it yourself or you've got to do it, replicate those successes elsewhere. And I think what this is is a testament to kind of that creativity. Um, it worked, but it didn't win the battle on its own. Well, I can't help wondering uh, whether you know how many people were lost uh, in in this explosion. Um, we don't entirely know. I mean, ultimately, this was a this was a German position. It would have been it would have been a lot um, if you imagine the, the the position on top of it would have been would have been held by you know thirty, forty, fifty people at a minimum. Um, they would have all you know, instantly evaporated, and that's even before you take into account whether there were other other people there at the time, and and whether there were other people sheltering in it from the the various big artillery barrages that were going on. And um, one of the things that actually happens as well is that you end up with quite an awful lot of British dead here as well, because obviously one of the things they don't entirely anticipate is that obviously to attack the line behind this, you have to come through the crater, and getting down into the bottom is a darn sight easier than getting out of the top. And actually, by the end of the first day, an enormous amount of British casualties are sustained here because once the Germans have got it ranged in and pinned down for artillery fire and everything else, um, it becomes a bit of a a kind of a a bold killing ground in itself. Uh, 
I, I feel that I could quite easily stand here for uh, a long, long time taking in what this means. This is, I think, the thing that's impressing me, and I, I don't mean in the positive sense of the word, uh, the most is the unhuman, I guess inhuman scale of this. This is beyond uh, human size. And then you you look back and you can see these. Well, it, this was a, a good uh, defensive position. Of course, you've got fantastic lines of sight right the way down these uh, uh, gentle valleys. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the woods earlier when we were walking up, and you, you can see them from here. And if you if you look over from here, you can see we're pretty much level with them uh, over here. We're at the, the the top of a ridge, and that ridge runs all that way. And that, that was the German lines. As I say, these guys had, had prepared these positions. They knew where they needed to be. And as we look off, um, I mean, to, behind this crater here for us and look down, back down those undulating hills, that's, that's where the British had to advance over. Um, it's pretty open. Um, and once you throw mud and shell holes and, and everything else in there, all the other obstacles you get in no man's land, um, it's not a, a nice piece of land to try and cover. Well, it's uh, that seems like a, an understatement and a half. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I suppose the other thing to consider is, is, is as you look across it, so you can see it, it, it winds quite a bit. This this high ground winds, and one of the the overriding images we have of of these kind of assaults is you imagine these people marching into into endless machine gun fire directly ahead of them, and that's partially true, but actually an awful lot of the damage doesn't come from that. It comes from the fact that this whole area is slightly undulating in it as a line, which means you get something called um, enfilade fire. Exactly. Yes. Enfilade fire, which is that you you don't just have to worry about the machine gun in front of you. You have to worry about the the one off to the left and the one off to the right that are actually surrounding you slightly, and they can arc round and they can just gently sweep back and forth. Um, in the uh, see, I've got a balance. Uh, I've got to strike a balance here. On the one hand, uh, as I mentioned, has some resonance for me personally and imaginatively, and much more so on a human individual level. But then we're also attempting to uh, do something on a professional level here as well, and I'm I'm going to uh, nudge things back into the professional zone or attempt to, and suggest that we move on we mentioned the wood i think we'll probably head that way um this this site is a very good example of it gives you a good idea of what happened on on day one um and i think that's what's worth remembering with this is that ultimately the somme is is almost a battle of, of multiple parts where we are now is is the line on on july 1st when the british first attack and they break through in a small amount of places but not a, not a lot there's an enormous amount of casualties um you know where we're standing right now over the course of the the day looking down for the rest of the line here um 50,000 people 60,000 people were killed wounded uh trying to take this this ridge this 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 line just on day one and i mean that's that's hard to visualize but i mean imagine you you, you rush hour commute in the morning and imagine you sat on on the platform at King's Cross or Victoria or wherever it is you you, you commute to, and imagine sitting there for for two hours and watching trains go by. Imagine every single one of those trains being empty because that's how many people were were killed or wounded on that on that first day alone. Are there others like this? 
as a as a mine, it wasn't uncommon across the rest of the line. There, there are other ones similar to this because the British knew where the redoubts were and wherever possible, they do they do something similar. They try and blow them up. Um, you can't really see them now, um, not so much. Um, some of the smaller ones still exist. Um, a couple of the larger, larger ones do, but you've got to remember that most of this is was is private land. It was it was all owned by by farmers, and after the war, they wanted to to farm again. Um, so many of them have been filled in. Um, just either naturally or deliberately over time. Uh, Loch Nagar, where we are now, um, was actually um, is private property, but it was bought a while back to serve as a as a as a reminder of what these were. Um, I think it's still run by a, by a charitable organisation. Um, if you if you Google it online, you Google Loch Nagar Crater, their website will pop up, and I know they're always appreciative of kind of the effort and the support to keep it going and keep it here, so it can remain such a memorial to. To, to what was an enormous explosion. Yes, and they, they are uh, unfunded in their uh, work here, except through uh, voluntary means. So uh, that, that is particularly important and particularly surprising, I've got to say. So I'm just I'm going to uh, reconfigure um, a little bit here because I'm finding this a very, uh, professionally speaking, in terms of presentation, I'm finding this an interesting podcast to, uh, to negotiate, as the listener will certainly be aware. One of the things that I'm, I'm conscious of, of course, doing what I do, I do run into uh, other presenters, whether it's TV or uh, in radio and other styles of doing things. And if there's one story we hear too much of, it's media types kind of blowing in and uh, being very disrespectful um, and, and not really noticing what's actually going on on the ground and just being there to record whatever it is they want to record and offending everybody in the process. I think I'm going to say that on that level, I'm uh, proud not to be uh, unaffected by what's going on here. But also, uh, the, the fact is that uh, the, the 50,000 uh, people that you mentioned were men. And this whole idea of manning up and and standing up and being a man, which kind of means putting your feelings to one side and getting on and doing what must be done and so forth, got us to this point with the big hole in the ground and the the fields uh, strewn with bodies and I think maybe um, my personal politics tell me that it's rather important to feel and to be uh, knocked sideways by seeing some of this anyway, enough about me let's um, let's move on through this landscape, where, where are we headed next what's your idea? We're going to head over to one of the woods you can see in the distance there um, which again you can see is roughly of a level with this we're at one effectively at one end of the line here we're going to jump ahead now beyond day one and we're going to get into the, the battle beyond it um, and that's a good place to do that for reasons that will become apparent we're heading back down the uh, back down the lane now we've just had a, a fascinating meeting with uh, or a fascinating encounter with the people who maintain and care for the uh, uh, integrity of the crater there in the face of enormous numbers of uh, galumphing uh, war tourists and school children and so forth uh, and um, well I just wanted to sort of check in with you please because we're, um, we're two uh, astute middle-aged men and um i i think unless i'm reading this wrong that both of us uh there's an emotional impact here that that far surpasses i don't know what i expected but uh it's there isn't it i think it's it's impossible not to feel affected i mean 
the numbers the numbers don't do it numbers once they get big stop meaning anything and i think you know we're both walking at an average speed here we're heading back back to the car and you know for every step we're taking 10 people were either killed or wounded three four five six seven eight nine ten yeah and when you when you put it in that in those terms i mean and these are just guys who were their friends they signed up from all walks of life this is their first real bit of combat and for most of them it's their last now four hundred thousand people will die in this in this battle before it's over and for eight miles worth of land I've often thought that I'd be rubbish in the First World War and I had this um, rather airy notion that uh, because I'm tall, extremely tall, uh, the uh, the snipers would have got me. But uh, <laughs> I think that was a, a, a rather fanciful bit of thinking going on there because that's not, not really the problem, is it? No, it's not the snipers that'll get you. It's, it's the artillery. It's the artillery oh, right, and the okay. machine guns. It's the artillery and the machine guns that'll get you. Right, OK, because it's, uh, of course, presumably coming over the top of the uh, the crater there and heading down this slope uh, towards the, the British lines that we're, we're now walking back towards. Artillery shells whizzing over, right? Well, I mean, if you imagine how these assaults go in, you've got the, uh, your own artillery that's firing on the Germans, and there's always a chance that's going to fall short because the gunners are just as new at this as you are, so they're, they're, huh. they're still going to judge. They've got to judge their shots. But actually, the Germans knew this was coming. They didn't know exactly maybe the date, but they knew it was coming. And once they realised it was imminent, they knew that the British must be massing troops in their own trenches to, to, to come off and launch these attacks. So they would, they would massively bombard the trenches. So many, many, many of these people died before they even got out of the trench because they were hit by German shells landing. And then obviously, once they start advancing and coming forwards, the German shells aren't going to sit there and not not land whilst they're attacking one of the reasons these guys have to carry so much weight when they attack and we're talking the equivalent of, of two spare tires these guys are carrying with them that's why they can't run it's not because they don't want to run it's because they're two way down but they have to carry this stuff because they know that even if they do succeed in breaking through the german line they're going to have to defend that from the german counterattack, and they're probably going to have to defend that whilst they've been cut off from their own lines because the german artillery will be falling behind them it's a bleak picture. We're going to uh, take a word from our sponsor, and uh, we're going to be back, and we're, go- we're going to close in on the story of the Londoners here on the Somme. Londonist.loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. For anyone familiar with uh, some of the names associated with the Somme, the five, ten minute drive we've just taken is uh, full of place names that are horribly familiar. Beaumont Hamel, Mouquet Farm, Pozier. And we're now heading towards Thiepval, along uh, a road between ploughed fields. Very unremarkable to the eye. Yeah, I mean, keep an eye out, though. Um, yeah, just there as we go, that bit there. Um, 
is what you will see occasionally is I mean you've got to remember the sheer weight of shells that fell on this land that still the farmers will still occasionally just plough up old shell cases and everything else and they tend to just leave them on the, the side of the field as you can see just there's a few examples we passed on the way um, and that's that's kind of called the iron harvest it's the bits that still a hundred years later get dug up I can see uh, a little further off in the distance there a structure of some sort that we seem to be uh, moving towards and um, is that thiep uh, yeah, you can just see it peeking over the, the, the top here. You can see the top of, of Lutyen's kind of famous memorial. Um, Teitval's a, it's, it's a kind of com- combination of memorial and cemetery. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, the, most, well, the most impressive but also saddest places you'll find on this front. The structure such as we can see it at the moment uh, looks like the end of a cathedral sliced off it does look like a, a facade rather than a, a structure you've kind of got two alleys of, of, of trees on either side and looking straight through the middle you'll see this this huge arch with two smaller entrances on the side and a large arch in the middle it's this big kind of impressive red brick and marble structure and the, the scale on it, you can see from it, I mean, it, it's towering over those trees. Those trees aren't small, and, and this is much higher. One of the things we'll see here is the, the name of, of a Victoria Cross recipient um, who was from London, um, but also the regiment with the largest number of casualties in Teval is actually the London Regiment. Um, there are an awful lot of their names on the, on the walls here, um, over 4,000 in fact. Well, here we go. We're rounding the rounding the corner of a small church here. There's a lot of construction and reconstruction going on. It must be a peculiar experience, mustn't it, having a house in this area? We passed one actually earlier on that was festooned with all sorts of well piles of shell casings. For one thing, perhaps part of that iron harvest you mentioned, but also period pictures, cardboard cutouts of a of Tommies and national flags of the combatant nations. It's interesting, one of the things that you can't help noticing when recording sound is the wind level. And although really it's not a windy day, there's absolutely nothing uh, stopping the, nothing to obstruct the breeze whatsoever. You can feel it flowing across the landscape here. Um, what is going on over there? There's a. Well, we're. No, not there. We're, we're approaching the Deepval memorial and uh, there's a a sparkly visitors centre to our right. The road leading up to it though has a uh, a ploughed field on the left and there must be 30 or 40 people who appear to be searching for things. They've spread out and they're they're dressed like tourists 
I'd say uh, not English tourists either, judging by the colour of the shorts, which are uh, extremely offensive. And they're, they're picking through. There's a chap in uh, very light-coloured chinos wading through the mud who's surely going to re- regret doing that. They're going to regret it if they find a shell, which is, I think, what they're probably looking for, right? Yeah, I think um, what you've got there is an American tour party looking for, uh, well, the, the, the iron harvest we were talking about earlier. Um, Presumably some of these shells could easily be live. Uh, yes, theoretically, but almost certainly not. Yeah, the theoretically bit would be enough to put me off, I think. Should we, uh, should we head forward? Yeah, let's head up to the memorial. Just, uh, just as a by-the-by... And I, I don't know how much of a by-the-by it is, really, but I, I think that America only got involved after sort of Lusitania and uh, late on in the war. Did, did American uh, people serve here? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the America gets involved um, sort of slightly later, um, sort of 1917, um, and without, you know, the American manpower and, and, and the American material, um, the Allies would ultimately not have been able to, to push back the Germans. It's a very peculiar thing that we're witnessing here. This is like uh, everybody losing their contact lenses at once. It's yeah, it's it's strawberry picking for shell casings. <laughs> well, the, the, if there is a funny thing here, it's that they're quite obviously in a field that has nothing in it. It's just ploughed mud. And here we are. A low wall. Engraved with deep vowel Anglo-French cemetery, manicured lawns beyond. Yet more tractors. Awful lot of tractors and construction around here. Yeah, there's actually some some big maintenance going on to the memorial itself at the moment, so we won't be able to get right up close to it. I think. Not that we need to. This thing is colossal. Yeah, it's only really when you get this close that you you realise the sheer scale of this thing. And actually, I suppose, in a way, having the work going on in front of it is actually a very nice way of kind of really getting an idea of the scale of this. We can put a bit more detail on what we're seeing now. And a few, a lot of neoclassical garnishes there in the shape of carved wreaths. There's a there's a London building that this is reminding me of, and I can't put my finger on it. It's a it's a bit Alexandra Palace. Yeah, there's a certain element of that to it. Um, one of the things, and, and this isn't an example, but they do exist, is is that you got to remember that, that a lot of the people like Charles Holden, who, who went on to build uh, various London underground stations, he designed various memorials that you will find out here. We won't see any today, but but he's you know there are certain war cemeteries that you go to them and they, and they you sit there and think they look familiar and it's because they were designed by the same guy who did many of the tube stations we know in London It's incredible isn't it it seemed very two dimensional when we were at a distance but now it, it's very clever the way all these arches and uh, arches within arches work at the top engraved Aux armées françaises et britanniques, l'Empire britannique reconnaissant. As we get closer, you'll see the design on this is, as you say, it's, it's three-dimensional, not two-dimensional, and that's, and that's deliberate. As we walk under it here, you can start to see that on every single one of these surfaces 
is carved the names of people who died and who have no known grave. There are 70,000 plus names on this memorial um, and 90% of those are people who died here at the Somme. It's British and French and South African soldiers. Um, the, the other Commonwealth and Dominion uh, countries have their own cemeteries around here um, in which they have similar huge walls of, of, of the missing. These are guys who, whether it was through shelling or just the sheer chaos of battle, their bodies were never found. And the fact that you need something this size to even just have enough space to put all their names on it, uh, it kind of tells you everything you, you could possibly need to know about this battle. The concept that 70... Well, and again, we emphasise that's just the British men that we're talking about here, that, that 70,000 men could disappear. I, I can't think of any other circumstances under which it would be possible to say something like that. No, and, and one of the, the extra sad things is that actually, for some of these people, there will originally have been a known grave. They'll have been buried in, in Highwood or somewhere else like that during the battle. And then subsequently, whoever buried them dies, so they're not, we don't know where they are. Or even the, the, the ground is changed by shelling and, and, and those graves disappear. So there are, there are kind of letters of written home by guys who, who write to the, the, the relatives of their friends and say, I know where he was buried. But then when they go back after the war to help the Commonwealth War Graves Commission kind of move these people and commemorate them, they're just, they're just not to be found. And we've rounded the structure now. And with the sun on this side of the building, it's much easier to see all those names every available surface covered with them and then stretching down the hillside behind this uh, memorial exactly what you'd expect to find in this part of the world and it's that site of gravestones stretching away um, there are wooden crosses half a field of those the difference between the, the crosses and the gravestones is the crosses are for the French the gravestones are for the, the British each kind of country has its own sort of designs that go along with these things um, but the British were quite keen that you have the same headstone for all of these, these people no matter what, what rank uh, what, what social class or position they have you'll find you'll find uh, not so much on this battlefield but if you go to, to various places in Belgium you'll find members of the royal family will have exactly the same grave and stone as, as, as the lowest private it was something that they were very big on after the war the Commonwealth War Grave Commission that everyone should be commemorated in the same way What about our Londoners who have been shipped over here? So if, if we turn around now you'll find we're basically pretty much at the, at the bottom of the, the huge monument here um, and as you look up um, on this side actually you can see all of the different you know, Londoners who fought in this and have no place of burial above us right now these huge panels you can see you know, we've got the London Scottish the Civil Service Rifles Queen's Westminster's take up two panels um, London Irish Rifles uh, 19th Battalion London Regiment, 1st Surrey Rifles that's important to remember is that you know, it's not just central London, these things. It, it stretches out into the, the wider boroughs and the surrounding counties. An enormous amount of London has served in the Middlesex Regiments, for example. 
And there are also Londoners on here who aren't under those regiments. One of the people that, if we look around here, um, unfortunately I think it's on the other side so we can't get to it at the moment, but is Jethri Cather, who was from Streatham Hill, um, but actually served in the Irish Fusiliers. Um, he was one of our Victoria Cross recipients on that first day of the Battle of the Somme. Um, and we have this kind of image that to get a Victoria Cross, it's, it's, it's a certain sort of... It, it's, it's about bloodiness, it's about going over there, it's, it's killing lots of people, it's, it's the glory. Actually, his Victoria Cross comes very differently. Um, as the battle kind of continues and the wounded continue to mount, he turns and after the advance has stalled, he starts carrying people back out of no man's land, the wounded, the injured, and trying to get them to safety. Um, not only, therefore, does he, he, get, he get back to the lines himself, but he goes back out again and gets more people. And he does that two, three, four times before, and you know, eventually he too is killed. And that's what he earns his Victoria Cross for. And I think that's one of the things that you, it's quite easy to forget, not just for these, these, these London platoons and battalions and regiments, but for everything is that ultimately when you get into that situation, you, you kind of... You, you cling to your pals whether you signed up together or, or you, you've become friends and you, and you help each other and that's almost what his Victoria Cross is for we're going to uh, move away from this memorial we're going to uh, a place whose name seems familiar to me High Wood that's a place with particular poignancy for Londoners fighting here yeah, many of the, the 4,000 plus names of our missing Londoners that appear on, on this monument um, actually lost their lives in the fighting at, at Highwood. Highwood was a, an objective on the first day. It's one of the places they were trying to capture. It's another one of our kind of... Uh, the clue's in the name. It's, it's, it's a wood on a, on a high piece of ground that the Germans were occupying. They had trenches around. Um, and the objective was to capture it and therefore prevent there being a kind of a view over the line and, and to move things forward. It was not successful on day one. It was not successful on two weeks later when they tried to, to take it again. In fact, it wouldn't be until September that they would actually kind of properly manage to make an, an impact there. But throughout that entire time, uh, Londoners and others are fighting and dying in this wood in an effort to capture it. Well, as we leave the graveyard here, and I, I, I've only just realised quite how many of the bodies buried are unknown by name. And there's that phrase, known unto God, on very many of the gravestones. Um, it makes me wonder how often you find yourself in places like this as part of your work. Yeah, um... I think uh, I, was, I was over in, in Belgium a little, a little earlier in the year um, at Tynecott, which is, which is, I mean, it's as hard as it is to, to imagine. It, it, it dwarfs this place. Um, I don't think I can ever be in these places and, and not be moved. Um, I do genuinely think that, you know, you walk down rows and rows of these people and uh, the words known unto God to me are some of the saddest words in the English language, to be honest. I want to ask a potentially offensive question um, because clearly you're exposed to, through your work, uh, you're exposed to images and ideas which are, you know, just appalling and violent. 
and uh, there's a lot of death going on there. And I mean, I'll, I'll say that sometimes during an interview, perhaps there are times when I could care a little more. However uh, important the subject is, uh, sometimes one can find one's mind wandering to doing the job and, and perhaps drifting away momentarily from the, the sort of the human interaction and what, what's at hand. And I just wonder whether there are ever times when it's possible for you to be... Um, uh, not dis- desensitized, I, I, I suppose, but to catch yourself taking things a little too readily in your stride. I think you do. I think, and everything, you know, human beings, and myself included, we we have the ability and the tendency to kind of rationalise things and to to not really be able to understand big numbers sometimes. And I think. You know, if you're a historian, if you're if you're a writer about these kind of things, it's very easy to slip into that sometimes. But one of the reasons I, I you know, I, I kind of like, well, likes maybe not the right word, but why I appreciate coming to to places like this is I think they have a very real and physical way of bringing you back. You know, you, you, you there's a there's a gravestone at, at Tynkop, um, which is on in Passchendaele, which is Belgium, and it's no one famous it's just a soldier but on it his family kind of chose to to engrave the words uh, sacrifice to the fallacy that war can end war and it's hard not to see that at any point and not have a strong reaction to it have you ever been attracted to the idea of being a soldier yeah it was something that when i was growing up was 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 uh, was something that i I kind of always saw myself doing almost. I, I kind of grew up on a diet of war films and everything else. And part of me sits there still today and wonders what would have, what would have happened if I'd gone into the, into the army or whatever else. But ultimately, you know, I'd, I'm a historian, I'm a writer, I like these things. And I think um, it's... I think coming to places like this and studying things like the World War I it makes you realise how much can happen due to chance, not skill. You know, so many of the people you see here are buried there because they are in the wrong shell hole at the wrong time. And that, that stuff that you could be the best soldier in the world, you could be a superhero of, of Hollywood epic proportions, and you just happen to be in the wrong place in the wrong time. You know, the, these, are, these are how most of these casualties happen. Yeah, I think we we can argue that uh, absolutely everybody was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You hit the question of, of whether, why were we, you know, why were the British here, and all these things, and they're, they're very complex questions. And I think you almost go back to an earlier war, you almost go back to the to the kind of the Battle of Rourke's Drift, and the, the famous line in the film where one of the privates turns to one of the sergeants and says, you know, why us, Sarge, why us? And, and the sergeant replies, you know, because we're here, lad, because we're here. And I think that really was a sentiment that everyone on this front would have felt more than anything else. It was just, it was something that, that had happened and everyone was here as a result and you've got to deal with it now. Another shellfishing expedition. <laughs> we're, we're heading out now and the cloud field is now being searched by uh, a, a large party of, of uh, French senior citizens whose footsteps you can hear in the background. Some of them are ankle deep in the field. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to suspect that this is the place you're least likely to find some kind of shell casing or piece of shrapnel on the entire front. Um, it's clearly been picked over quite a bit. They are being very thorough. I, I suspect they're likely to find shoes owned by the previous group of people. Yeah, I, th- I think they're going to find something, um, some kind of American hat badge and, and, and uh, start thinking that there was American regiments <laughs> here or something. Maybe we should some, bury some stuff for them to find. There's, there's an awful lot of temptation to, to bury something anachronistic and see what, see what happens <laughs> when they find it. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. We're on our way to High Wood and have come through the village of Fleurs, whose church is an amazing object. Every church in this area seems to be parts of this church clearly do date back some way but it's what's in the shadow of the church steeple that's of most interest to us here and I don't mean the uh, the chickens wandering around nearby in the next field it's this monument Gareth yeah what you're looking at here is is the monument to uh, the the kind of the members of, of Clapton Orient Football Club who served with the football battalion in World War One um, three of them in particular who died here on the Somme at various points during the battle uh, William Jonas, uh, George Scott and Company Sergeant Major Richard McFadden and they were all players uh, as with other players um, they, they fought they fought here and they died here and it's quite an impressive memorial it was, it was actually erected in 2011 by the, with help from funding from the Late Orient Supporters Club um, and I think what's what I what I think makes marks this out is not just the, the kind of the football boots and the football rendered in stone, um, but also the, the scarves for Leighton Orient that are draped around it. Well, there are photographs of the three men in question affixed to crosses, and uh, they're in the earth in front of this memorial. And there's also a message from the mayor and the people of Fleur. And it says that it's been uh, put together and looked after by the mayor and the population of Fleur. And, oh yes, there's a message here in French which gives thanks and uh, recognition to the mayor and the population of Fleur for the generous donation of the ground on which this uh, memorial is erected. So the football battalion was, was one of the Kitchener's Pals regiments and it features various footballers the, the footballers from Clapton Orient were, were the first to, to kind of sign up to this at the beginning of the war there had been this thought that maybe the football should continue that it should it kind of life remaining normal was, was an important part of it but very quickly it, it kind of became clear that, that these these people were heroes to a lot of people and it, they needed to be or it was felt they felt as much as anything else that, that if people were going through this they needed to be part of it as well and ultimately you know various of the Glasgow clubs, clubs would have players represented they'd come from all over the UK but, but Clapton were the largest contributor and this of course brings part of our mission here to a close and indeed uh, that idea of closure I guess is embodied by the memorial. We're not done yet, though, uh, because uh, our final stop today is the wood overlooking the battlefield of the Somme. It's uh, high wood to which we head now.
where we've been winding up through country roads and between lots of working agricultural plots uh, tractors moving stuff around huge barns full of bales of hay and every so often as you pass through a little hamlets and and villages and get out onto the open road you'll suddenly see a a sort of a roman looking structure Um, and as you turn the corner you discover that it's the uh, the monument in a a a small neat graveyard actually the graveyards always seem far neater than they should out in the middle of the slightly less organized slightly less ordered countryside as londoners gareth and i uh, have correctly identified that the uh, crop stretching out as far as the eye can see in uh, this field is uh, a plant of some sort and to the right or there's a a much less uh, pleasant site which is a another graveyard much bigger actually than most of the plots we've passed on the way here and the structure in front of it and the uh, ornamental hedges are a little bit more uh, ornate yeah we're at the i think it's the third largest cemetery on the front um and this is a, a field full of awful lot of londoners um this is we're on the edge of highwood which is one of the key bits in the battle throughout its duration from opening day right through until it ended and this is where most of these londoners fought and died and the wood is still here i mean of course i mean it's quite a thicket but it's it's not all that big. What, why was this of uh, strategic importance? Uh, clearly the, the height of it, I've gathered that much. Were there other reasons? Um, as much because it's, it, its height, its location, um, all, all those things, and I know they kind of get said a lot, but those are the things that matter. And this, is, this, is one of the, this was one of the key goals that they wanted to get to on, on day one because to a certain extent if they reached this they could, they'd, they'd, have, they'd have broken the German lines somewhat and the idea was you'd have this, this kind of, then you'd march out into open country. Um, actually this is one of the places that in the middle of July they, they do achieve some kind of breakthrough at. They, they managed to largely push the Germans out of this area um, and you actually get the rare sight of cavalry on the Western Front here. Actually, uh, a bunch of uh, Indian lancers, um, but they don't properly exploit that gap. Um, word doesn't get back quick enough to, to command that the, the, the gap is there, and by the time it's 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 known to exist, the Germans have reinforced. They hold Highwood again, and they they continue to to hold Highwood. And there's an awful lot of bloody fighting here right up until until September. Let's grab a hold of those uh, ideas. The word's got to get back to where from here? How far has somebody got to move a message? Well, you're back to, to moving moving messages back to your own original lines, um, which, as we talked about earlier, I mean, sometimes that's 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 30 feet, sometimes it's considerably longer. It doesn't seem like we've come very far from... Uh, uh, as the crow flies, I'm guessing it can't be more than 10 kilometres. No, but you've got to remember the technology they had at the time. I mean, ideally, even the, the hardest part of getting a message back is getting it back, getting it back that, that those 30 yards to your own line often in some cases um you've got to remember we're largely in a in a time here where where you don't have radio communication everything is via fixed phone lines and it's by runners and you know war war as we've already discussed here is it carries a huge death toll um if you're out in the open you you have a very low chance of survival being a runner and trying to carry messages back is not is not entirely useful as a communications method so even if you've taken the ground between here and the, the first of your lines that's safe, what are you suggesting, that there might still be enemy combatants lurking around? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you've got to remember is the line gets captured 
uh, when these things happened at different speeds. Um, one uh, battalion or regiment on one part of the line may make big inroads into the German the German lines. They may capture things, but unless the guys who are fighting alongside them in the same in the adjacent sector do the same thing, then suddenly you're back to being you know the dreaded enfilade fire again and 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 all that kind of thing. And that that's often what happens with, with throughout the whole of the Battle of the Somme is is that different points of line get taken at different times and suddenly you're exposing yourself to, to, to flanking fire to everything else and, and yeah, it, it, beyond that the Germans aren't going to stop shelling no man's land if they know people are coming through it, you know, if anything they shell it more On that happy note we proceed towards the cemetery um, I wonder whether we've developed the idea of the football battalion sufficiently. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the kind of the Kitchener regiments that we talked about earlier is, is the football battalion. They fight around here, they fight around Delville, um, one of the other woods near here, and they take an awful lot of the brunt of the fighting. They're around here, they're between here and, and uh, the high wood that goes on to a, a Delville wood further down. Um, and also beyond that to, to Guillemont, they are fighting and, and dying here. In actuality, um, the Clapton regiment, the Clapton element of the regiment, doesn't do too badly here. Um, they lose people. Um, you know, doing badly is a relative term, unfortunately, for these things. Um, but they're in and around here. Oh, right, this is interesting. This is the first time I've noticed one of these cemeteries reflect uh, the dead of both world wars. And it just uh, at a cursory glance, it looks to me as though there are more on the side representing the First World War than on the side representing the 39 to 45 war. Yeah, this is London Cemetery and Extension. As you can see from kind of the stonework, um, it was extended, well, I mean, it was extended to accommodate the First World War victims as much as anything else. But you, you find that there are. Second World War burials here, just as much as there are First World War burials. I think it gets forgotten that a lot of these cemeteries around here, and especially again once you head into into Belgium and beyond, effectively had to cater to the lost of two two conflicts. Well, this is a really tastefully put together place, isn't it? As you as you pass through an open colonnade with the columns and arched brickwork uh, you encounter something that looks not unlike a sarcophagus I suppose and it says their name liveth forevermore and beyond that under a sun that is behind uh, just a, a wisp of cloud and is giving a very particular effect there's a long well cared for lawn leading at the far end to a carved crucifix of stone on left and right the massed ranks of the dead gravestones facing one another and then tiered back and they go a very long way can we say anything about any particular Londoners or any uh, experiences peculiar to those from our city I think one of the things that's just worth remembering is, is you know, we look out at these over you know, countless rows back, 10, 15 rows deep on either side, is that all of them, you know, almost to a man, all of them were Londoners. 
and all of them signed up to fight with their mates. These are almost exclusively members of those kind of those pals battalions, those kit- that Kitchener's army. So you know, in their own way, each one of them is a story, or at least each group of them is a is a you know, it's a group of Fulham lads that signed up together. It's it's it's, it's a group of North Londoners signing up together. It affects the the top and bottom of society as well. Um, buried in this cemetery is is David Henderson, Captain David Henderson, who is the son of Arthur Henderson, who would go on to become personal war leader of the Labour Party. Um, you know, Asquith, the Prime Minister, lost a son, so did Henderson. And I think these things actually go a long way to, to accounting for some of the, the politics and the way politics shapes out after the war is all no, no family was untouched by this. And I think when you, when you see these this cemetery and sprawling out before me it's impossible not to realise that Do we know how the uh, land is allotted for these places of remembrance? Well all of these are taken care of by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission um, at the, in, in the, the immediate aftermath well during the war itself it was realised as, as the dead continued to mount and as more and more cemeteries came to exist that something more organised needed to be done um, and so an organisation was set up to, to cater for that. And in most cases, the French government or the local landowners donated land quite happily to do these cemeteries. Um, you will find that there are more cemeteries with more space for the British and French dead than there are for the German dead. There are, there are German cemeteries around. They tend to be more compact and more contained. Um, partly it's a cultural thing. Um, whereas we tend to have, as you can see here, these, these, these long ranks of white gravestones. For the, the Germans, it tends to be more communal burial. Um, but also partly it's just, it's just because, you know, in, in the, raw, the raw times after the war, asking French governments and, and, and landowners to, to allocate extensive land for, for German war, war dead was a, was a sensitive subject. All the graves are different. All the different cultures mark their dead in, in different ways. Um, I personally think that the, the, the British way, the white headstones, really, really hammers home the futility of it all more than anything else. And I think that's, that's, that sends a message in itself. Well, look, this was never going to be an easy podcast to draw to a close. We can note that as a military historian, you have a new site that explores military history and uh, people can find that uh, of course that will be on the, the show notes for the episode yeah we're, we're setting up a, a site called uh, lapsedhistorian.com um, which is very much just to, to it's almost for, for people who are new to history or, or who used to love history and have come back to it and the idea is that we just take the time to, to do a bit more long form writing you know, on, on things like this on, on military history and some maybe some of the lesser known aspects of it but also on other things like you know uh, British space race and, and all that kind of thing as well. Compared to some of the other places that we've visited today where tourists have been massing or people have been working, uh, my uh, first impression of this place was that there's nobody here. And then you pause and let the breeze blow over these hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of headstones and you realise that actually there are a hell of a lot of people here. The one thing of which I can assure you is that for uh, for all the quality and integrity and balance that's been introduced into the media coverage of the First World War, nothing really compares to being here. <laughs> <laughs>
and I think I've heard somebody say that on a TV show. It really is true. It's a couple of hours on a train. I would strongly uh, recommend that if you haven't already, you put yourself in touch with this part of the history of our capital, indeed, of our country. From the London Cemetery and Extension next to Highwood on the Somme. Gareth Edwards, thanks very much. You're welcome. My heart and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Gareth Edwards. Thanks too to those working to preserve Loch Nagar Crater. That's lochnagarcrater.org. Also to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.